Welcome to the serialized audiobook, Pandemic, book three of the Infected Trilogy. Written by number one New York Times bestselling novelist, Scott Sigler. Performed by Phil Giganti. Pandemic is also available in print, ebook, and unabridged audiobook. For links to purchase any version, visit scottsigler.com slash pandemic. Chapter 48 The Seal Polyus Klimas had never seen a cell phone quite like the one that had been handed to him by the captain of the Coronado. It was a bit smaller than the satellite phones he'd carried into at least a dozen missions, and ridiculously heavy for its size. The captain had asked Polyus to his stateroom, provided the phone, then left, giving Polyus privacy. That alone indicated some important shit was about to go down. The first call to the new phone had come from none other than Admiral Porter himself. That call had lasted all of three minutes, long enough for Porter to stress that the safety and future of the United States was on the line, and that Polyus was to facilitate in any way possible the next person who would call. Maybe that finally meant some action. When the battle had occurred four days earlier, he and his men had been ordered to do nothing. The Coronado hadn't launched boats to rescue the drowning, hadn't welcomed the wounded aboard. Zero contact. As other ships sank, as flaming oil spread across the water, Polyus had watched sailors fighting for life, and he had done nothing to help them. He and his men from SEAL Team 2 could have put their three Zodiacs into the lake, could have grabbed dozens of sailors from the water, could have saved many lives. He had never felt so ashamed of following an order. But he had obeyed. He had made sure his men obeyed. Polyus understood the order, even if he didn't agree with it. So far, no one on the Coronado, SEAL Team 2 included, had tested positive for the infection. He and his men were a contingency plan, to be used in a worst-case scenario. And now, it seemed, that scenario had arrived. The Pinckney, the Brashear, and now even the damaged Truxton had reported positive tests, incidents of violence and murder, even the execution of military personnel. Porter's call meant it was almost time to act. The phone buzzed. Polyus answered. This is Commander Clemus. Hello, Commander said a baritone voice on the other end. This is Agent Clarence Otto. Polyus nodded. Yes, finally there would be a role to play. Agent Otto, I have been instructed to follow your orders. Good. What have you been told so far? That you control the package, and that the package is our highest priority. The package, in this case, was a person. One Dr. Margaret Montoya, and whatever she might be carrying. Tim Feely and Agent Otto were to be rescued as well, if possible. But Dr. Montoya had become the focus of Klimas and his team. Excellent, Otto said. I need you to prep for an extraction. Understood. When? Soon. We're hopefully finishing up some research here, but we may have to bug out at any moment. Three people from a ship that was already known to be compromised. When Polyus went after them, He'd probably take all twenty seals under his command, bring the package back to an isolated ship with a crew of fifty. Just one infected person could mean the death or conversion of everyone on board. May I ask as to the state of health for you three? I'll come get you if you're halfway down a crack leading straight to hell, but I'd like to give my people the best possible chance of making it out of this alive. 
Are you asking if you should be wearing CBRN gear? The acronym stood for Chemical, Biological, Radiological, and Nuclear, and applied to the bulky biohazard suits military forces wore when any of those four threats were present. They do get in the way a bit, Polyus said. If possible, we'd rather go with our usual attire. Polyus heard the man breathe in deep through his nose, let it out slow. A thinking man, perhaps. If so, that was a good sign. All three of us are negative at the moment, Otto said. But be ready to adapt. Listen, Commander, I want something to sink in. If I call you, the people you're bringing out and the material they are carrying could save the world. That's not a figure of speech. It's literal. Admiral Porter told me we were saving the USA. Now it's the world. Go figure. If we fail to extract the package, what's the worst-case scenario? Extinction, Otto said. The entire human race, gone. If any of your men signed up to be heroes, Klimas, this is their chance. Agent Otto sounded like an okay guy. Maybe he had a service background. He didn't sound like a bullshitter, but he was still a suit. Bullshitting and suits went hand in hand. His words, however, stirred Klimas's soul. No one joined the SEALs to push pencils. Saving the world? This was as big as it got. Chapter 49 Heading for Port Cooper sat in the bridge of the Mary Ellen Moffat, guiding the ship toward Chicago at eight knots. The wind had picked up to forty miles an hour. Waves hammered the boat. It was two in the morning. The storm blocked out all stars, and snow swirled madly. His visibility was damn near zero. At a time like this, Lake Michigan was the wrong place to be. The weather forecast said the storm would die down in a few hours. Once it did, he could make better time, probably hit Chicago sometime that afternoon. Everyone else was asleep, as well they should be. The job was almost over, and the weather had made everything about as difficult as it could be. Cooper yawned. He drank a little coffee. It was already cold, but he didn't care. He just needed to stay alert for three more hours. Then Jeff would take over, and Cooper could get some sleep. If all went well, he'd wake up just in time to help dock the Mary Ellen. Then he and his best friend would be rid of Steve Stanton and Bo Pan. They wanted off in Chicago? Well, that was just fine. After that sweet goodbye, Cooper and Jeff could hit the town. A couple of days in the Windy City would be just the thing. Jose could come, too if he opted to go out for once, instead of rushing back to his family as usual. Look out, Chicago. The boys are about to be back in town. Chapter 50 Battle Stations Hey, Margo, Perry said. He smiled, that smile that would have made it rain endorsement deal millions had he fulfilled his destiny in the NFL. Hey, Margaret said. I got Chelsea. Perry's smile faded. The voices have finally stopped, but I don't think I'm doing so good. I've got those things inside of me. His face wrinkled into a frown, a steady wince of pain. It hurts. Bad. I think they're moving to my brain. 
Margaret, I don't want to lose control again. I'm so sorry I failed you, Perry. I tried so hard. You won't, she said. They won't have time. The same dream, the same lines, and now the same sound. The whistle of a bomb rushing downward to kill him. A small shadow appeared on the ground between their feet, a quivering circle of black. Perry stared at her. Then he looked to the sky. That doesn't sound right, does it? The whistle. It had always been a consistent sound, growing steadily as the bomb fell. But this time it sounded intermittent. On, then off, on, then off. Perry leaned in close. General quarters, Margot. All hands man your battle stations. Margaret jerked awake. She was trapped, held down, something wrapped all over, cocooned. Margaret blinked, reeled from the stab of terror that flooded her chest. No, she wasn't in one of the fleshy brown cocoons. She was in her biohazard suit. She was in the lab. The sound of an alarm filled the air, audible even through her thick suit. A high-pitched whoop, whoop, whoop that told her things had gone bad. She was sitting at a workstation next to the butchered body of Candace Walker. Margaret had fallen asleep right on the keyboard. On the screen, an endless line of B-B-B-B-B-B-B-B-B-B-B stretched from the top to the bottom. She heard Tim's voice in her helmet speakers. Margaret, get up! We're under attack! Under attack? That didn't make any sense. Who would attack them on Lake Michigan? A hand grabbed her arm, gripping hard against the blue synthetic material, jerked her around. Tim Feely, eyes wide and nostrils flaring behind his clear visor. He held a metal canister in each of his gloved hands. That's the combat alarm. What do we do? A voice bellowed over the speaker system, making them both jump. General Quarters, all hands, man your battle stations. The blaring alarm returned at full volume. The floor suddenly bucked up beneath them, tossing them into the air. Margaret landed on Candace's body. Both she and the corpse fell to the floor. Monitors, tools, and equipment rattled down all around them. Margaret found herself staring into Candace Walker's empty skull, the concave impressions of where her brain had once been, reflecting the lights from above. Candace. The hydras had made her immune. The hydras. Margaret had to save the hydras. She jumped to her feet, as did Tim. A canister had fallen to the debris-cluttered floor. He picked it up and clutched it to his chest. Margaret pointed at the canister. That the yeast or the hydras? Tim flashed a glance at it. It's the yeast. He looked down, around, a move made awkward by the bulky helmet. The other one has the hydras. Where is it? A cold vibration in her chest. If they lost that canister, she'd have to go back into the holding cells, in the midst of all this insanity, and draw blood from Edmund. She turned, looking for the canister amid the fallen equipment and scattered supplies. The morgue module looked like an earthquake had thrown it to and fro. 
Candace's body lay on the floor, half on and half off an overturned autopsy table. An excited voice blared from the ship's speaker system. All hands to battle stations. We are under fire from the Pinckney. Repeat, under fire from the Pinckney. All hands to battle stations. This is not a drill. Repeat, this is not a drill. The ship lurched again, hurling her across the module. She slammed into a wall, felt her head bounce off the inside of her helmet. Lying on the floor, left shoulder stinging, someone yelling. She smelled smoke. How could she smell smoke? She was in the suit. The stinging in her shoulder. She looked, saw a piece of torn metal jutting out, blood trickling down the blue synthetic fiber of her suit. A hole, six inches long, ragged. She was exposed. In the climate-ravaged world of 2072, the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geoengineered paradise that protects its fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. In a time when the world outside is unsafe, it's vital for Pura's existence that people rally behind the purpose of the city, and Demetria Lopez, head of the city's public relations, tirelessly promotes its idyllic image. But when she stumbles on a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. island in frigid lake superior a fabricated creature birthed from the mind of a disturbed genius stalks the very people who created it ancestor by number one new york times best-selling author scott sigler is a classic tale of science gone horribly wrong available wherever you get your podcasts hands pulled her up hands far stronger than tim feely's Margaret found herself staring at Clarence. He, too, was wearing a suit, but there wasn't a mark on it. He had his pistol holster strapped to his right leg. Margo, you okay? She glanced at her shoulder. No, she wasn't okay. Clarence pulled her close, looked at the shard of metal. It's not deep. Hold on. He reached up, grabbed it, gave it a light tug. The sting intensified for a second, then eased off. He put his left arm around her, placing that hand on her wound and squeezing, applying direct pressure, even as he urged her toward the door. Come on, he said. We're moving. We've got to reach the side airlock. Margaret planted her feet. The Hydras, she said. There's a canister of them around here. We have to find it. The floor lurched beneath her again, a concussion wave slapping like the hand of a giant. Stunned, she started to fall back. But Clarence held her up. No time, he shouted. Move! Feely, get your ass up and follow me! Margaret didn't have a chance to see if Tim was okay, because Clarence all but dragged her to the ruined door. The door and walls alike were bent and shredded, white surfaces streaked with sooty black. Small fires flickered wherever they could find purchase. Clarence raised his foot and lashed out, kicking the door open. 
He led her from the morgue into the analysis module, which was in better shape, straight through it to the miscellaneous lab, and finally out of the trailers altogether. He turned right, pulling Margaret along, headed for the airlock that led into the receiving and containment area. Then Tim was next to her, the yeast container still pressed to his chest. Something had split his helmet visor. Blood poured from his forehead down the left side of his face, making his left eye blink spasmodically. The airlock looked intact. She planted her feet. No! What if the explosions broke the containment cells? Those men could be out! My suit! I could be exposed! Clarence pulled his pistol from its holster, pointed it at the ground. Tim, get that door open! he said. Tim ran to it. Clarence pulled Margaret forward. Margo, we don't have a choice. We either get into the water so the seals can rescue us, or we go down with the ship. We don't have long before strike fighters blow everything to hell. Fighters. Murray had pulled the plug. He was going to firebomb the Brashear, the Pinckney, the Truxton. Send all of it, metal and man alike, straight to the bottom. Tim opened the door and they all moved inside. He sealed it up, started the pressurization cycle. As air hissed in, he looked at her arm. Shit, he said. There's sticky tape in the processing area inside the big side airlock. We can seal this up. The airlock finished cycling. Clarence opened the door to reveal a smoke-filled mess. Sodium hypochlorite sprayed down from the ceiling. She smelled it instantly, filtering through the tear in her suit. The automatic decon procedures had kicked in, and she instantly saw why. The containment room had taken a direct hit. Something had blown a hole in the white wall and slammed into the clear cages, ripping apart the middle cells. Bodies and parts of bodies, some red and raw, others blackened and smoldering, lay scattered among foot-thick spider-webbed shards of glass. She saw Conroy Austin's severed head, a sleepy look on his young face. Something had torn it from his shoulders. It had come to rest on the bloody, ragged neck, temple pressed against a broken chunk of cell. A rain of bleach wet his hair to his scalp. Bits of brown material clung to his cheeks. The two cells closest to her had avoided the worst of the damage, but thick cracks lined their walls. The cell on the left held Clark's hatchling-ridden corpse, still strapped to the metal bed. But the cell on the right, Cantrell's cell, it was empty. The cracked door hung open, its flat panel monitor black and still. Where was he? He'd tested negative all the way through. Could he come with them? Clarence released her shoulder. He stepped out of the airlock door, pistol in both hands, barrel in front of him. He moved to his right along the bulkhead wall that separated the containment room from the lab area, keeping the metal to his back. Bleach rain drizzled on his suit, ran down it in rivulets. He looked back at her, reached out his left hand and curled his fingers inward. Follow me. Tim gently pushed Margaret's back, urging her forward. She stepped out and followed Clarence. Bleach beaded up on her visor. She quickly reached her right hand up and held her left shoulder, covering the hole in her suit as best she could. Clarence kept moving to his right, eyes on the shattered cells in front of him. He reached the empty prep area just inside the wide exterior airlock. The endless rain splattered off the stainless steel equipment. He looked back at her, urgently waved her forward. She stumbled toward the garage door-sized airlock. Tim ran past her, head still tilted down as much as he could manage, his blue suit wet and gleaming. 
The bleach smell grew stronger. Some of it had leaked into her suit. It wouldn't be long until the fumes made her lungs burn. Clarence had to get them out fast, or she'd be as good as dead. Tim reached a keypad to the right of the airlock. He punched in a code. The heavy door let out a hiss of compressed air, then slid open. Margaret stared out into a nighttime blizzard. Through the whipping snow, she saw shimmering lights. The Pinckney looked like a mystical fortress rising from the depths. Snaps of orange and yellow dotted the sky, muzzle flashes lighting up like the sparkle of cameras in a dark arena. Fresh air blew in hard, making the bleach spray in any direction but down. Oh, shit, Clarence said. He grabbed her, held her tight. Tim, hold on! From the rear of the shimmering gray leviathan that was the Pinckney, Margaret saw a billowing cone of fire and heard a simultaneous blast that hammered her ears. The deck bounced beneath her. She fell, landing on top of Clarence's thick chest. A roar overhead. Margaret looked out and up, saw a bulky helicopter moving through the whipping snow, away from the brashier and toward the Pinckney. Something flashed from under the helicopter's stubby wing. A missile shot forward, trailing a rope of glowing smoke. The missile closed the distance in two seconds. A fireball erupted from where the Pinckney had just fired. Margaret, hold still! Clarence, shouting to be heard over the alarm and the explosions. She turned to see something moving toward her face. She closed her eyes, trusted him, felt that something tug down around her neck and shoulders, pushing her suit against her skin. A life jacket. Look at me, Clarence said. She opened her eyes. Bits of snow and ice clung to her visor, sliding down the glass along with the spraying bleach. Through it, and through his visor as well, she locked onto his intense eyes, his commanding eyes. He shouted. She listened. The jacket will keep you afloat, he said. We have to jump. You'll hit and go under, but you'll pop right up. She heard a ripping sound, looked to the source. Tim Feely, wrapping sticky tape around his back and belly, over and over again, fastening the yeast container to his stomach. Clarence ran to the wall and grabbed another life jacket. He pulled it around Tim's head, even as the smaller man kept taping. Clarence fastened the life jacket as Tim cut the tape and tossed the roll away. Through the wind and the spray and the sound of gunfire, Margaret heard something to her right, the labored breathing of a man in pain. She turned and saw Cantrell coming for her, not even ten feet away, black skin wet from the bleach rain, his squinting eyes red and swollen. In his hands, a fire axe. She took a step backward, away from the man. Clarence! He was there instantly, stepping between her and Cantrell, pistol raised and firing. Margaret kept backing up as the first round made Cantrell twitch to the right. The second bullet blew out the side of his head. He fell like he had no bones at all, face slapping on the metal deck. She took one more step back to stop her momentum, but the foot hit empty air. The fall lasted forever and less than a second, a moment of nothingness before she slammed into the water. All noise ceased instantly. Someone had turned off the volume. In front of her, blackness. Cold hit her hard and from all sides. Her body went rigid, her breath locked in her chest. Then, 
Sudden heat across her skin as her suit automatically tried to compensate for the drop in temperature. She felt it everywhere but her shoulder. There, a creeping icy death as water poured in. She had a sensation of rushing upward, saw tiny wavering lights. Then her helmet-covered head popped back into the noise of war. Gunfire and screaming, the roar of flames, the concussive pulse of explosions so powerful that air slapped against the water. The surface reflected the firework flashes from above. In front and behind, towering ship hulls rose up like smooth, impenetrable castle walls. Swells lifted her and dropped her. She felt that numbing cold, that clutching snake wrapping around her feet. Water pouring in through the tear in her suit, filling up her boots. Margaret turned sharply, trying to lift her left shoulder out of the water. She dipped into a deep trough. From her right came a new roar as a black monster tore free from the top of the wave, kicking out a spray of water that sparkled orange from the reflected fire above. The black shape crested, almost flew, then came down hard in another splash of molten orange. Not a monster, a black boat, a raft, packed with men who looked like robots, dark bulky shapes and smooth helmets and huge guns mounted to the raft itself. A line of splashes burst up in front of her face. Bullets, someone shooting at her from up on the brashear or the Pinckney. As one, the boat's gunners aimed up. The black monster breathed fire. The boat rapidly slowed to a stop near her, its bow wave pushing her back. A black man, no, a man wearing black face, pointed a black rifle at her, screaming to be heard over the gunfire. Identify yourself! Ma, ma. Her jaw chattered so hard it hurt her teeth. Identify yourself! Ma, Margaret! Montoya! The point of the rifle lifted. The man leaned forward and reached, grabbed her life jacket and pulled her toward the boat. I'm Commander Klimas, he said as he yanked her up. Stay down and don't move! She felt a strong hand push her, not to harm her, but rather to hold her still. Margaret found herself in the bottom of the raft, lying against a soaked and shivering Tim Feely. Most of his suit had been cut away. A black blanket covered his shoulders. His bloody scrubs clung to his body. He clutched the container of yeast tight to his chest. The deafening guns continued to roar, to spit tongues of flame up at the sky. Shell casings rained down, bouncing off her visor, landing in the boat or hitting the surrounding water where they vanished with an audible tsst. She saw a knife move near her face, then a rapid tugging on her suit as someone cut it away in long shreds. A long, heavy blanket was thrown on top of her, tucked around her shoulders. The boat shot forward, smashing against the tall waves, rolling her against black-booted feet. She sat up, knees to her chest, pulling the blanket close to try to fight off the cold that rattled her body. Where's Clarence? She screamed to no one, to everyone. One of these men had to know. Agent Otto, where is he? The unmistakable plunk, plunk, plunk of bullets smacking into the boat. Something hammered into her right thigh, made the muscles numb. She was trying to get her bearings when the numbness quickly faded, replaced by a branding iron pain that seemed to singe her femur. Wincing, fearing the worst, she opened the blanket to look at her leg. Blood poured from the wound, 
hot against her ice-cold skin, matting her scrubs to her thigh. She grabbed the thin fabric of her pants and ripped. A long gash ran from a few inches below her hip down to mid-thigh. The bullet hadn't penetrated, only grazed her. A man landed hard in front of her, black face tight in a grimace of agony, left arm across his chest, left hand clutching at the back of his neck. Blood poured out from between his fingers, looking just as black as everything else. She forgot about her leg, lurched forward to help the soldier. Tim, come here! Tim stuffed the yeast canister into his scrub top, then leaned over the wounded man, trying to keep his balance as the boat rose up and smashed down again and again and again. Tim's hands probed the back of the man's neck. Margaret wiped her cold, bloody fingers against her soaked scrub top, then slid them along the man's throat, looking for additional wounds. Clear and breathing. How bad is the wound? The bullet took out most of the posterior musculature on the right, Tim said. The jugular and carotid were spared, but he has significant hemorrhaging from the wound. I think the brachial nerve plexus is gone. Tim sounded calm, of all things. Margaret briefly wondered why he'd gone into research. The man had been born for this. Gunfire roared around her. She sat up higher, hands searching the man's combat webbing for something that felt like a flashlight. Again a hand came down from above, grabbed the back of her neck, tried to force her flat. Her palms pressed against the bottom of the boat. Stay down! The boat hit hard against a wave. It felt like driving a car into a wall. The hand came off her for a second. She pushed up and swung her right elbow back as hard as she could. Felt it clonk into something both hard and soft. I'm a doctor! God damn it! Let me work! And give me a fucking light! Plunk, plunk, plunk. Another string of bullets stitched across the small boat. She felt the hand reach down again, but this time it pressed something against her chest, a small flashlight. Margaret flicked it on and scanned the man's body. He might have other wounds that were even worse. The boat hammered across the waves, repeatedly rising up hard, then dropping to smash against the concrete surface. She found nothing. No additional wounds, she said, then handed the light to Tim. The strong hand on her yet again, on her shoulder this time. Klimas, the seal who had pulled her in, knelt next to her. Agent Otto is in the other Zodiac, he said. He's okay. She felt a burst of relief, albeit a brief one. She had her hands full trying to save a life. Tim adjusted his grip on the wounded soldier. He's still breathing. He's moving his legs, and I think the major vessels are intact. He can survive this if we can control the bleeding. Cease fire! Another voice called out. Cease fire! The gunfire stopped, leaving only the driving snow and the howling of the wind. Klimas stood. Recovery complete, he said. We're clear! From high above, she heard the loudest sound yet. She looked up in time to see a flicker of flame heading behind them, toward the Pinkney and the Brashear. A missile. She looked away just before it hit and became a deafening, temporary sun that lit up the surface of Lake Michigan. The task force was done for. Captain Yasaka, Cantrell, Austin, Chappas, Edmund, all the crew from both ships and the Truxton as well. All gone.
so too were the last of the hydras. A black-gloved hand dropped a black canvas pouch in front of her. It was about twice the size of a paperback. She looked up, saw the black-faced Klimas looking down. Tromakit, he said. Save him. She nodded. Thoughts of Clarence, the battle, the dead, the hydras, even the awareness of her shivering body and her own wound faded away as she and Tim Feely went to work. You have been listening to Pandemic, book three of the Infected Trilogy by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler. Performed by Phil Giganti. Produced by Empty Set Entertainment. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.